0: Welcome to Unraveling the Anthropocene Race, Environment, and Pandemic, a podcast series brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective, or LAC, at the Pennsylvania State University. As an interdisciplinary group, we promote visionary scholarship in the humanities, we build community across different fields of study, and we highlight the ways that different disciplines inform and shape one another. You can find more information about our previous events on our website sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic this year, we have developed this podcast series as an intervention into our global ecological emergency. In our discussions with scholars, activists, artists and community members, we address how global ecological crises both impact and are impacted by political turmoil, widespread outbreaks of infectious disease and racial violence. Hi, and welcome back to Unraveling the Anthropocene. I'm Irene Agbideon. And I'm Camila Gutierrez. In this episode, we'll be having a conversation with Elizabeth Gray on her book project, The Poetics of Intervention, Art and Activism in Contemporary Latin America. Dr. Gray is a Public Humanities Postdoctoral Fellow at Penn State's Humanities Institute. She earned her Doctorate in Comparative Literature from Brown University, and is currently working on a book manuscript, The Poetics of Intervention, Art and Activism in Contemporary Latin America, Her manuscript explores literature, performance, and protest in spaces of present day crisis. By centering on the experiences and artistic practices of excluded communities, the project amplifies innovative models for responding to urgent social and ecological issues.
1: Dr. Gray previously worked as a public school teacher in the United States, Brazil, and Chile, and facilitates community-based workshops in arts and social justice. She is also a poet performer, and literary translator. Elizabeth, welcome to our series. We are very happy to be speaking with you today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here talking with you about my work. And also I'm new at, um, at the university at, at Penn State. And it's great to have this connection with all of you and to learn more about these great public humanities projects that are happening around the university.
1: Following that more formal introduction, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and about the work that you do?
2: Sure. So as you heard a bit of in my my background, my formal training at first as an undergrad was actually in English literature and secondary education. And so I began first as Someone who was very passionate about literature and the arts, but also teaching and thinking about ways to use the arts uh, for social change in education and in other spheres in comu- in the community. So, following that, um, my education, I moved and lived several years in Latin America, where I became really invested in the social movements and art practices that were happening in those spaces, and was really struck, particularly. When I, while I was living in Chile by how much uh, interdisciplinary art practices were used as part of social movements and street protest. And that kind of uh, spurred my interest in following that practice into workshop spaces, my classroom, and then later into what would become a huge part of my research for my dissertation and now book project.
1: That's great. Thank you. Um, And to expand a bit more on this um, multiplicity of things that you do and combine, you are a poet and performer, among other things, and also a trained academic, just like you mentioned. Can you talk more about the ways that your diverse occupations inform one another and how do you navigate these different aspects of your professional life?
2: I think one thing I've learned uh, a lot from these different practices is to try to bring as much as I can of these different selves and ways of thinking and moving in the world into one another. So often when I'm writing now, I try to think a lot through questions and practices that um, I bring from my kind of personal art and collective art making with other um, activist artists into my more academic area of work. So for instance, while I was writing my dissertation, there are, of course, central guiding questions that we have in our research. And I started to ask a lot of those questions of myself um, in my poetry and performance work, as well as in my academic work. And sometimes that can produce really interesting responses or answers. And when we're thinking through performance, we think a lot about embodied knowledge. And so I also was really interested in thinking about what happens when we take questions that were key in my research, like what happens to a body that's disappeared? Um, And thinking about the connections of language and bodies and what we might find if we bring those questions to our own bodies and think about which bodies are more susceptible to language and the action of disappearance. So those are some of the ways that I think um, having an interdisciplinary or creative background can also really enhance all the different ways that we think and do
0: work. Yeah, thank you for that response. I kind of want to bring our conversation to our main topic for today. So we're here talking about your book project, The Poetics of Intervention, Art and Activism in Contemporary Latin America, and I'd like to focus on the first half of your title. To put it bluntly, what are the poetics of intervention in simple terms? What do these terms underscore or bring together in a project that is concerned with art, social justice, and politics?
2: So this term intervention is one that made its way into the title um, only very late in the project because what I was really doing in this project from the beginning was exploring different modes of protest and art and the intersections of poetry or other forms of literature, and even publishing their production, um, and how they intersected how different uh, communities in Latin America were kind of intermixing these disciplines and artistic practices. And what I really wanted to do was not come to these spaces with certain terms already in mind about what I might find. And so what I found over time was that artists and um, activists were using the term intervention to describe the work that they were doing. And I was really fascinated by this, first, because particularly the, the term intervention already has this history that is also very politicized, and it can often have a very negative connotation. But here, artists were talking about it as a way of making a political and often street intervention or communal intervention that was disrupting a practice toward a social change or social um, intervention. And so here, what I um, am calling the poetics of intervention is really an exploration of how and why artists are using this term to describe the work they're doing. And I think part of that is also Foregrounding this in the book is also something I care a lot about as a researcher because I really think that we often as academics want to go in armed with terms to figuring out what we're looking for um, rather than kind of organically letting those terms emerge and particularly letting the people making that art or practicing this art tell us what it is that they're doing. And um, so that is why I really am drawn to that term, and I'm all the time trying to figure more out about why intervention is being used, or um, I would say it's even a new term for what was called art action before in in Chile.
0: I'm not familiar with that term, art action. Can you elaborate on that?
2: So I think art action is um, a term used a lot in Latin America to supplant what we call performance, So performance is a term that's equally used in various spaces around the world. We have a a translation problem, we might say, (laughs) with the word performance. But as often happens, the English term kind of supplants um, or imposes itself in all these linguistic spaces. And so I think what's happened in the Spanish-speaking context is different groups of artists and performers have at times come up with their own words for what we would call performance. Um, Particularly in the um, 70s and 80s in Chile during the dictatorship era, there were several groups creating um, or under the the kind of name Arte Acción, or Action. And so I think this is a term that a lot of performers used to describe their work for a long time. So I'm interested in how and why now there's a shift um, to say that they're making um, intervenciones, interventions.
1: Interesting. Thank you for that. Can I ask something else about that? When you're referring to these groups that were working, especially during the dictatorship, that calls to mind not just, uh, let's say, dancing performance, which is what we think of in terms of performance, right, but perhaps even muralism? Is that something that we would be included in that?
2: Yeah, and I think um, certainly the group that comes to mind for me from that early area is um, Kada, um, which was a group of of interdisciplinary artists. They wrote poetry, they, they did large scale <laughs> interventions in the street, um, and often had kind of social means or, or projects, uh, aspects to their work. And certainly I think what's so nice about terms like art action is that they, they don't lend themselves to simply one discipline, right? They can certainly be about mural art, about um forms of performance art, right? So they can be a protest uh, that has a creative element. And I think that that is precisely why words like, um, like art action and intervention have been taken up by different artists and activists alike because there's a kind of flexibility or ambiguity to where it can exactly define, um, particularly when we talk about arts. People love to talk about disciplines and mediums and say, this is where one medium or discipline starts and ends. Um, So when you get terms like intervention, art, action, they become more ambiguous. Thank you.
0: It seems like there's a lot of productive work that could be done in that ambiguity. You're not married to the very specific implications of a word, or you're not perhaps using terms that would then, I don't know, remove some of the power or the efficacy of the projects that these groups are doing within their own countries and cultural contexts and localizing that within perhaps the U.S. Academy or Western epistemology, quote unquote, these bigger contexts. Awesome.
2: Yeah, precisely.
0: So I want to ask another question. Your work is based in on-site research in being able to speak with artists and writers in Argentina, in Chile, Brazil, Mexico. So first off, a practical question. How has the pandemic and correlative health and safety restrictions impacted your research methods?
2: So certainly this has been the biggest (laughs) challenge of of doing this form of research under um, our new lived reality with the pandemic. I was set to be uh, traveling throughout Mexico and Chile, actually starting from the second week of March. So (laughs) there is certainly an intervention into the -the on-the-ground research. That was, um, that I kind of planned. And also um, the way that particularly with performance being there and with protests being there, there's um, that embodied live experience that is very much a part of the work that I do and the way that you write about the work that you do or think about the work you do. So that has been a a big kind of shift, but again, I think this is also prompting us all to find other ways of of being and collaborating and thinking so for me this has really led to um a couple of things one is that the the way that social media has been instrumental in particularly social movements and now has really moved into different forms of documenting art has been really life-changing for the way that I can do my work. So during the protests in, in Chile and now in Peru, there, there's a, an, an uprising in, in Peru right now. And things like um, Instagram and live videos, you can often go on if you're following different accounts um, and you know there will be certain art performances going on. I obviously rely on a lot of collaboration with friends and artists and activists that are there to let me know, and they kind of can give me a heads up to when things are happening. So I've been able to kind of participate in a very mediated way in certain aspects of the performances and protests that have been happening there through these live videos. I think in other ways, it's added this kind of incredible element where in a single day, I can go to a poetry reading in Mexico (laughs) and then I could attend an art event in Argentina and then see what's going on in the protests of the street in Chile. And that is a, an unbelievable, right? A way of moving about in spaces and thinking with different people that is physically impossible, but has been made possible in some ways by technology.
0: So basically this pandemic has very much impacted your ability to do research in the ways that you've been trained and actually prefer to do work. But at the same time, it's opened up all these possibilities for this endless creativity you mentioned, or just this ability to engage and participate and be in these incredible spaces as they're going through these moments of change. Um, And you mentioned that, obviously, this embodied live experience impacts the way that you think and work. So I want to ask a second, more open, reflective question. You've kind of hinted at this already. What does it mean for you to write about poetic and performance practices when you can't be there to witness them? What position does that put you in?
2: Yeah, I think this is the challenge that anyone who works on different forms of liveness or performance or protest comes up against. um, Because certainly for me, participation is a really big part of my practice. And that itself is something that I don't think uh, all academics are necessarily comfortable with, um, certainly those of us trained in comparative literature and literatures would resist that as um, as a mode of thinking and doing it would It would seem very strange that you would interview the very poets that you're researching, or certainly you could do that, but you wouldn't necessarily include large amounts of that into your own writing or have it influence what you're thinking and doing in different ways. And this is where I think um, my work tries to really blend different ways that uh, theater and performance and ethnographies are working, as well as um, the kind of close reading and interdisciplinary poetics that are really valued in literary studies and comparative literature, for instance. Um, So I think for me, part of it has been Trying to uh, negotiate how those two things come into balance with one another. But for me, going back to this term of participation, I think for my work, because it's so centered on really pressing social issues and often working with collectives and activists and artists that are that are really putting themselves at risk in terms of entering into spaces and making very strong statements. That for me to simply stand apart from them to observe what they're doing without taking a more active role would really um would really kind of go against <laughs> the ethics of the project. So that's not to say a term at certain times of of course observing and, and paying attention to what's happening around me and what people are making and creating with a more kind of critical. Gaze and lens. But at other times, I've participated in most of the workshops, protests, performance ways that these artists are working in some capacity or another. And part of that is about thinking about what our role can be too, and how we, as researchers, um, also need to kind of put our bodies on the line and be a part of this um, in solidarity with these movements.
0: I want to talk a little bit about some aspects of your book. So in your project, you argue that Latin American art and activism is marked by a turn towards autonomous, self-driven or self-directed forms of publication and experimental poetics. Can you talk about what's motivated this shift and what the various groups and figures you study have gained from this shift?
2: So the the book focuses on uh, this period that... Is called or has been called by other academics a kind of social turn in the arts, beginning in the kind of late, mid to late 90s um, and moving forward. And so my book first starts looking at the uh, economic crisis in Argentina and the different alternative modes of publication that were coming out of that crisis. So around 2000, 2001. And um, from there kind of moves forward into contemporary and ongoing projects that are happening now, depending on um, the kind of region we're talking about. But I think this, uh, particularly in, in talking about Latin America, what, has, what kind of stood out to me about these, this kind of shift as it was happening in those spaces was particularly in the realm of publishing. So this, I think, has mostly to do with the fact that there were large scale economic crises in the early 2000s that were impacting um, Latin American markets everywhere. And what this really prompted was this fascinating boom in small press publishing. And it wasn't simply that these that different artists and writers um, and publishers came together to try to replace or replicate what was happening in large publishers, but rather to make something entirely new, um, and part of this was responding to these kind of large, I would say monopolizing presses that really sought to only make as much money as they could by publishing the names that everyone was most familiar with. so everything was about this bottom line of who will whose books will sell the most, and often those publishing presses were already controlled, owned and run from spaces outside of Latin America. So many of the presses in Latin America are stemming from um, Spain for instance. And so this is already a kind of colonial logic that's at work in publishing. And so what I was really fascinated by were these beautiful independent projects that were coming out and namely in Argentina, there were the kind of roots of a couple of movements that I traced there. So, one was starting with this uh, poet, performance artist, activist. She's kind of a, her name is always followed by a long series of other um, things. She kind of is um, a magical person who does everything. And her name is Fernanda Laguna. And she has this, started this wonderful place called Viesa y Felicidad beauty and happiness. And it was this wonderful kind of workshop space where people could create books. And she was making zines along in collaboration with a good friend there, but there were art exhibits, there were, um, but there were also social projects run out of there. She's in uh, another region of, of Buenos Aires working on a social project where young children are learning art, And also it's a food uh, kitchen where they uh, receive meals and training as artists. So there's kind of pairing of how to build community and keep art alive, but also to attend to the very real lived experiences and needs of people like food and shelter um, have always been a part of the roots of her projects. So I was really fascinated by what this particular example that I think then led to Others, um, including in the book, I have another chapter on the Cartonera movement, which binds books in cardboard. And the cardboard is bought from street collectors who were at that time, there were many people collecting recyclables off the street as a means of survival. And they decided to pay them uh, five times the going rate for cardboard to help support their living, but then turned through recycling these covers into book covers that and the books could then be sold very cheaply on the streets, making them both more accessible, but also keeping alive the works of authors and publishing more renowned authors alongside upcoming authors. So I think this kind of shift was one that I was seeing happening in in various spaces. And it's, I would say it's still very very present today. Um, And if anything, we've seen how movements like Cartonera, the, the use of cardboard books has now started, it started as a small project in, in Buenos Aires. And now it exists not only in every Latin American country, but in, in Africa, in Europe, we have some in the United States. And it really speaks to, sadly, the ongoing state of the crisis of publishing and art in the world. But I think also the way that one model can be kind of taken up and in this really great, networked, loose, informal fashion, travel all over the world and be replicated to meet the needs of
0: different communities. Wow. So that's incredible. You're looking at a shift that's engendered so many things. First of all, a response to coloniality disrupting who has power in the publishing markets. You're looking at publishing that's also tied to social projects that very much directly address the needs of people from providing food to developing skills in art. Um, You have this opportunity to build community and also to provide alternative forms of production and existence in the world. And also there's this environmental awareness going in literally with the publication of books bound in cardboard. Like that's an incredible move. Wow. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other work you're developing now. So you're currently in the early stages of a project on Mapuche art and environmental activism. Can you give us some background on how that particular project developed? So this project event uh,
2: in in its origins I guess or where it started was actually a part of this other research project and when I started I was writing a lot about different art uh, practices and movements and protests that were happening in Chile And I was really drawn to the work of uh, several Mapuche artists and writers, poets mostly. And uh, once I started writing that uh, piece and really seeing all that was in there, I really realized how much that I didn't think it would do the project justice to put it in as a chapter of this other project. Because I realized there was really just so much there and I wanted to expand upon it more and really also take a lot more time to ground myself in thinking about and learning more about um, indigenous histories and practices and knowledges and cosmovisions in Mapuche territories and um, cultures. And so for me, I, I really was fascinated by what I was seeing, but I realized that this particular book project wasn't probably the place for that. So um, I kind of set it aside at that time and now have picked it back up in hopes of continuing that work. And um, it's it's still in the earliest kind of beginnings of the project, but I've just started researching and presenting what I'm seeing happening.
0: Awesome. Um, Basic question here. Who are the Mapuche? And why are they especially at risk from environmental degradation in Chile, which I know is part of the project that you'd like to explore in the future?
2: There are several indigenous groups that form the Mapuche. So they're part of um, this understanding, and it's something that we come against, come up against, right? And I think all of the Americas is that there's often a way of not naming specific groups or tribes. And so it's important when we talk about the Mapuche, I think to remember that they encompass many indigenous groups. and. They um, historically lived and inhabited in areas that now under the colonial terms are parts of South Central Chile and Southern Argentina. So in the years that I was living in Chile, it became very clear to me that, of course, now, as has happened in many places, many Mapuche people now live and work outside of those territories, of course many of them centralized in urban areas. So in the case of Chile and Santiago, and in the case of Argentina and Buenos Aires. Um, So I think, um, of course, part of that alone, it gets to the point of what is happening and why we should be thinking about environmental degradation, um, why we should be worried about issues of displacement, and these long histories that, of course, are not unique to those areas, but we see them happening to indigenous peoples all over the Americas. And so particularly what uh, in the in Chile, the history is there that in current times, people have been really thinking a lot about, and many of the Mapuche activists are really speaking out of, against, are the history now of The privatization of Mapuche lands, the occupation of their territories and spaces, particularly by international forestry industries. Um, There was also the privatization of water there has led to um, tremendous dams that have dramatically dried up entire portions of water access ways uh, in those territories. So I think what we're seeing is really the way that, once again, territories that were homelands and also tied to the agricultural practices, the cultures of traditions, and the language of certain indigenous groups, in this case the Mapuche, have been completely privatized, taken over, and exploited by the government. And actually, in the case of Chile, these, these were all kind of written into the Chilean constitution that uh, was put into place under the authoritarian regime in the 80s. So part of this is um, linked to that history of how they have continuously needed to fight through the periods of colonization, but that there are specific moments when um, particularly the environmental concerns were amplified by what the government had decided to do to these territories.
1: Thank you so much for that answer. And um, I will ask you a follow up question that is partly coming from me as a Chilean who is also a subject of colonial education and for whom the Mapuche struggle environmental and otherwise, has always been cultural background noise that isn't typically addressed for those people who are not in those territories. We know about it, but we don't engage with it. And for me, seeing the protests um, and and all the social movements in the past year, and and a bit more, right, especially since um, the the Bachelet government and the case with Katriyanka, this person who was killed by police there has been something of a shift in which that Mapuche iconography is really starting to take a role in mass culture in Chile, whereas 15, 20 years ago, that's something that you wouldn't see. So I was wondering if you would refer a bit to the role that the Mapuche flag, for example, is taking in protests or in in denouncing environmental destruction or uh, police violence. And if Mm -hmm. not the flag, any of the Mapuche iconography that is now being turned into t-shirts, flags, posters, and all of that.
2: Yeah, I think it it truly is a a really powerful shift that we're seeing. And for our listeners who may not know, there's a a large social movement in Chile that began in mid-October of last year of 2019. And this is really large scale happening in the whole country against the various forms of inequalities. But one of the kind of leading uh, groups in this have, have been Mapuche activists, um, artists, and community leaders. And they're, they're, this flag, the Mapuche flag, has also become um, a kind of symbol of the larger protest. And so, this the flag itself is interesting because this is a a newer symbol, even for the Mapuche from the early 90s, and uh, was created to kind of bring together different aspects of Mapuche cosmovision and ways of seeing and being in the world. So, many of them tied to to nature and to culture. Uh, But it was also specifically made to kind of bring together and unite these these various groups that wanted to stand under one group of Mapuche sovereignty. And I think what's key in thinking about the role of this flag right now is that it's also a call for sovereignty from Mapuche peoples. And that is really a very profound statement that they have been making. (laughs) This is not new. But the fact that we're seeing the flag be so pervasive in these protests really shows, I think, a moment of of shift in the Chilean mindset, right? Where there's an acknowledging of a dual, dual nation state, right? We're talking about the fact that if we really want to get to a point where Chile is acknowledging this flag, it's an acknowledgement of a separate nation, of a sovereign nation and territories for the Mapuche, and also the return of their lands and significant support to return and attempt to reclaim all that has been taken away from them, um, including language, culture, thinking about the vast damage that has been done um, in those lands. So I think really having this as um, a kind of central symbol of the protest shows how much um, the Maputse activists and uh, leaders have achieved in bringing their concerns to the forefront.
0: Thank you for all of that information. Um, I want to talk a little bit about protest and activism currently going on or the image of protest and activism. For most people, The image of a protest or activism involves community gathering and collaboration, right? We're physically being present and being together. But of course, we're still in the middle of a global pandemic. In the case of Chile, how has the pandemic complicated, on one hand, social protests related to Mapuche Nation, among others? And on the other hand, how has it complicated these larger artistic projects that are in conversation with political protests?
2: It's a great question. And I would have more information if I were on the ground in all of these places, but um, it's a question I'm posing to a lot of people right now to try to find out um, exactly what is happening um, and how this is taking shape. One thing I know in the case of, of Chile is that everyone has reassured me that the protests and the movements have never stopped. So although there were moments of imposing kind of quarantines and limiting the hours when people were allowed to leave their houses and for how many times in a week people could leave to go to certain spaces within and around those guidelines, activists and protesters were continuously returning to the streets and working within those measures, wearing masks, which I will say, I think the fascinating thing in Latin America is that protesters already wore masks because it's a way of remaining anonymous and being secure. So it wasn't unusual to already go to a protest and see everyone with some kind of bandana already hiding their face. And so if anything, they were already masked up before the the protest started uh, or before the pandemic started. And um, I think another thing that in the case of Chile that I've heard a lot about is um, the way that... The, the government would attempt to kind of reclaim the streets in those hours of lockdown. And so this happened in a really visual way where the city is completely transformed by graffiti and art and poster images and murals. And it's a transformed, amazingly beautiful landscape right now. But what would happen is, during these hours of shutdown, authorities would come in and whitewash, essentially, paint over as much of these spaces as they could along the side, sidewalks or bus stops, any of these spaces. But what actually happened out of that is telling about the forms of protest and resistance, which is that as soon as everyone came back out to the streets, they would just paint more art and paint more slogans and reclaim them again. And so it's this kind of ongoing fight to to hold that space, but that ultimately usually results in exhaustion more on the part of the authorities. So they really can't keep up with the amounts of art (laughs) that is being put up onto the walls of the city. And I think that that's one kind of example that's really stood out to me a lot from what I'm hearing is happening on the ground there.
0: Very cool. So in a very practical way, it's kind of almost business as usual. We are still going to fight for change. We're still going to be out on the streets advocating for social justice. We are still wearing our masks because they are even more important now, not only for protection of self-identity, but because of the social health good that they serve. And it's fascinating to hear about this visual push and pull, this, this struggle playing out on the very city walls. And in this ongoing tug of war, right, people are persevering. There's this desire to force ahead, even as the authorities are becoming exhausted. The people themselves can't afford that. I think that's incredible.
1: If I, if I may respond to that also a bit from my perspective uh, as a Chilean who, who has some knowledge from my family and all that, um, it's been quite interesting what you mentioned about the masking because in the more recent years, the government had tried to pass legislation against face coverings and masking and then the pandemic came and it was like no you all have to wear a mask so people were like sure <laughs> yes and on the <laughs> other hand my own mom was one of those people who went into their neighborhood and, and put posters up and graffiti and all that and and she would say overnight the mayor came and painted over it, and they have never painted the subway before it was full of graffiti before but our graffiti is painted over so it's it's just this bizarre demonstration of that really all of these tactics are about oppression, right? Um, painting and cleaning the city for the city hall or for the municipality, it was never about really cleaning. It was more about silencing. So it's, it's become so evident right now. And, and I think that's fascinating. And thank you for, for really noticing and bringing it up because it's something that I'm intrigued by too.
2: I love that your mom was out graffitiing. <laughs> yeah. <That's- laughs>
1: about everyone started doing it as a sort of uh, cathartic exercise of we're so frustrated with the pandemic and with the government that we're just going to go out and put stuff all over the place. And if it's okay to shift gears a little bit, I would also love to hear more about what you have picked up from your experience as a teacher in all of these countries, because I understand you have not only documented protests. you have also been in the classrooms which is another interesting battlefield and I would like to ask you what kind of student profiles can you distinguish what is it that makes these age groups more prone to making calls for social justice in different places because especially in Latin America um, protests are sparked by student groups right and so being a teacher in that environment is quite interesting and in more um, casual terms, how has your pedagogy shifted? What strategies have you developed engaging with this type of student? Uh, thank you for the
2: question. Um, certainly, I, as someone who's worked with a lot of youth in in different capacities in in kind of youth arts organizations, um, I coach slam poetry and also in in teaching, right, in in different ways. I firmly believe that youth are the the best leaders for all levels of change, and they are the most willing to go out and start, and often in very creative ways, these shifts that we see happening. I was very, I was really blown away, honestly, when I moved to Chile to see how engaged Youth were in protests, but also in all sorts of movements. And during the time that I was living there, I wasn't uh, living there during the 2011 student movement, which was a, a larger one. I was there um, for the earlier one. I was there between um, 2006, 2009-ish, and so in those years, seeing kind of birth of these what they call the penguin movements. The the students there, <laughs> the students there, um, the public school students are called uh, penguins because of the colors of their school uniforms. And so it, re- it was really remarkable to be there during um, this time and I was actually both um, a public school teacher and also uh, I had started taking some classes at a university. So I was both seeing how this these movements were taking shape as both a teacher in the classroom and as a student who was attending school at a university. And um, what I was really kind of impressed by, I guess, were the way that the students were very, very good at developing series of demands, gathering groups together. They used all sorts of creative actions to do this work. And they also very frequently would occupy and take over school spaces or other spaces, central spaces of importance in urban areas and really hold them. They were able to claim them and make them their own and hold them for long periods of time. And this was not something coming from the U.S. that I was accustomed to seeing happen on, at such a large scale and for such large periods of time. And so I really think the student movements there actually have a lot to teach the world about how (laughs) to really create powerful and meaningful protests and also to gather youth and people from very disparate uh, spaces and move them into a kind of mass commitment (laughs) to certain demands. And what I find really fascinating but unsurprising about the most recent social uprising in Chile was, of course, that it was started by students. So there, what is now probably the largest social movement in Chilean history all began with students jumping turnstiles to protest a spare hike in their subway. And that launched and became a symbol of all forms of inequality and injustice and oppression in the country. And I think it's those it's a reminder of those kind of smaller gestures and how one small <laughs> is seemingly insignificant or minor thing in the in the larger scheme can actually launch this much larger movement. Um, so I think for me as a teacher, that was something really powerful. I learned so much from my students about how they were moving and thinking as organizers, as people committed to social change and justice in their country. but also, the way that the arts and creativity can be used to really subvert certain forms of oppression and violence even that were happening. Um, And this became very clear in later movements there where in 2011, there were flash mobs and kiss-ins and marathons of runners. And it becomes much harder to intervene uh, with a protest when it makes you laugh or it makes you smile, or you're in amazement at synchronized choreography, and there is a way that there is a huge artistic boom that also came came out of those protests and continues to so that's something I think for me uh, as a as someone interested in in art and education and forms of learning um and doing I've learned so much from my students
0: it sounds like. Being a teacher in Chile in this moment was an incredible and transformative experience for you. Um, And I'm actually wondering if you could share any other experiences that you've had similarly teaching in the United States or Brazil. And also, if you'd be able to reflect on any unique challenges that the public school systems of each of these three countries face. They are nations with distinct educational systems and their own issues to resolve. So if you could just speak a little bit about that
2: yeah I think all something that all of the these countries share in common in their public school systems of course is the um uh, the real impact uh that private education systems have had in influencing unfortunately the quality and accessibility of a quality education in all of these spaces and One thing that for me really stood out in uh, these places was thinking really about how our models are so different, but that there are really underlying systems of injustice that have, because neoliberalism doesn't exist now in one country, right? We have very similar systems and certainly now when we look to Chile, we can see where the privatization of uh, the university college system, for instance, has had really, really damaging effects on debt and on the, on access to higher education, which we now, of course, experience as a very live reality for students in the United States. Um, another thing that I think is quite different in in Chile and in Brazil are the importance, though, of entrance exams to have access to higher education because they have really different systems than we do in that way. And I think this is something that has changed in, in certain ways over time. But when I was there, it was certainly very exclusionary to uh, certain populations. In Brazil, for instance, it was very, very different, difficult and still is very difficult for Afro-Brazilians to have access to higher education. And while I was in Brazil, the time that I was teaching, I was in um, Salvador, which is a region which has the highest uh, number of Afro-Brazilian population in, in the country. And what I found there was was really beautiful in the public schools. And again, another example, I think, of how uh, wonderful educators are bringing together forms of art and culture uh, to teach and to really ground their education in ways that are meaningful for their students was that I was working with a teacher there who was a master of capoeira, a martial arts form. And I did not practice capoeira. (laughs) But at the time, I was charged with teaching my students English. But we actually decided to team teach our classes. And so the students were learning English and capoeira at the same time. Oh, wow. I think it was a really, I learned so much. Um, But it was a way to keep this kind of knowledge that was so important um, for them and I also did not feel comfortable bringing kind of my form of teaching and knowledge of English into that space. And I also think that there there's a lot of problems even with this idea of, of teaching English. But in this case, English was part of their exams to go on in school. And many of the students were not having access to English learning opportunities. So this was another barrier that was prohibiting them from um, moving forward with their education. So I think oftentimes um, in these spaces, I was just very privileged to learn from and with artists and activist teachers, right? People who are bringing these really creative forms of teaching into the classroom and that we're open to forms of collaboration.
0: So it's about Making space for not only alternative knowledge, but making space for meeting students where they are, serving them within their communities, and not only giving them the skills they need to pass a particular exam, but to interact with the world around them. And I am i am always a fan of collaborative teaching and co-teaching. I think some of the best lessons I've had are when I've had guest instructors come in and we build lessons together. Um, I think my students really enjoy those moments.
2: Yeah, it's really great. I actually am really lucky because I'm co-teaching right now at Penn State. My class is co-taught by um, Dr. Bernard West, who is um, a brilliant film creator and also teachers in the communications department. And so um, it's been a real joy to be learning from each other and creating together and having the students, I think, see a model of collaboration um, when we're also asking them to do collaborative projects is really meaningful.
0: Well, we're kind of heading towards the end of our interview here, and I'll just say, I'm sure that our listeners will be excited to read your book once it's officially published, and we'll be keeping an eye out for your, uh, secondary project. In the meantime, are there any readings or other materials that you think people should check out to get a better understanding of Latin American art and social protests and to get a better sense of what's happening in Latin America in the current moment? So I will recommend
2: um, a few things. And in keeping with um, the theme of this, I'm mostly going to suggest spaces where I think you can go and check out some of the protest art or street practices that are happening. And also, I'll recommend some good um, poetry, some some great examples of social justice-based work that's happening. So, in in the case of Chile and the the protests that are happening right now, uh, if you have not already seen it, uh, I will. And perhaps they can put you all can post links, so then people will know how to find these things. Um, oh yeah, oh, yeah. All okay. these
0: links will be but, made available on right. our website.
2: Um, but I highly recommend going and seeing. Las Teces, the group Las Tesis, is an artist collective, and they have done a series of amazing protests, but most famously, they have created a performance piece called A Rapist in Your Path that went viral and was translated and went all over the world. It's a great example of some of the creative works that are coming out of Chile right now in those protests. There's also a website that I will point you all to, and. I may have the title wrong at this moment, but it translates to roughly the city as text and it is a visual art piece that actually you can walk down the main street of La Alameda in Chile, which is the kind of main avenue and you it was um all the images are captured on a specific moment during the protest, and so you can walk and see what the streets look like and The creators have also collaborated with other artists and um, thinkers in Chile to receive some commentary from different people. And the site is now translated into English also. So everyone can, can see the art, but also read the commentary in both Spanish and English. And it's a great kind of snapshot of what it was to be in the landscape of Chile during that particular moment, um, which was a moment in fall of 2019. And uh, f- thinking toward my next, this next project that I was mentioning, there are a few artists and poets that I highly recommend. One is Sebastián Calfuqueo, and uh, they are a performance artist, also a sculptor, do a lot of mixed media artworks, have a beautiful websites with different works and they are a Mapuche artist. So I will also make sure that you have a link to check out some of their works and how they're thinking about areas such as water rights and justice and indigenous rights. Um, I'm going to jump us also to Mexico <laughs> if I can. And in Mexico, I the the groups that I work with there are working a lot on violence and Some specifically on femicide. So I would highly recommend the now translated text, Sara Uribe's Antigona Gonzalez, which is a rewriting of Antigone, the Greek tragedy, as a poetic work that I think shows the pervasive damage of the so called war on drugs in Mexico, but also is a kind of rewriting and deals with questions of appropriation and mixing together the voices, both real testimonies of, of families looking for the missing and disappeared alongside different examples of Antigones from both Latin America and the world. But it's a really beautiful work, and I think shows how on the side of, of, of literature right now, we're also seeing uh, these kind of genre band works coming out that really are attempting to address some of are pressing social issues at the moment.
0: Thank you for that robust list. All of those references will be made available on our website, that's sites.psu.edu backslash liberal arts collective. And I will highly recommend that you check them all out.
1: We have just left to thank you one more time for letting us interview you and learn more about your project.
0: Thank you so much for your energy, your enthusiasm all of these wonderful references and for the effort in responding to our questions. We've really enjoyed talking with you today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And I'm looking forward to checking out the rest of your podcast and learning from your other speakers. It's really wonderful that you're doing this series.
0: And this has been Unraveling the Anthropocene, and we'll see you next time. Unraveling the Anthropocene is brought to you by the Liberal Arts Collective at Penn State. This episode was produced by Irenaeic Virion and Camila Gutierrez. Be sure to
1: subscribe and follow along wherever you get your podcasts.